Hello, and welcome to Macro Minutes. During each episode, we'll be joined by RBC Capital Markets experts to provide high conviction insights on the latest developments in financial markets and the global economy. Please listen to the end of this recording for important disclosures. Welcome, everyone, and happy Thanksgiving to any of our U.S. listeners. Uh, This is the November 21st edition of Macro Minutes, which I'm calling Writing the Chop. Uh, I chose that title because we've had some pretty large price swings over the last few weeks, but ultimately, they don't really seem to have gone anywhere. Um, Just for some context around that, since our last episode two weeks ago, U.S. two-year yields have traded in a 30 basis point range. Uh, The day of the October CPI release last week alone saw a 20 basis point rally, but for all that movement, we're actually within two basis points of the close on the day of our last recording um, as we sit here to record uh, this week's edition. So anyway, we've got a great slate of experts today. Uh, We're gonna start with our US economist, Mike Reed, uh, to talk about US economic data. Then I will jump back in a little bit, talk about how the US uh, rate narrative has shifted heading into year end. Uh, Then we'll have head of North America's uh, rate strategy, Jason Dahl, to talk about swings in um, BOC pricing and its impact on curves. And then finally, uh, we'll head over to um, head of UK and European rates and economics, Peter Shafrick. Uh, he's going to discuss fiscal plans and whether central banks are going to remain at the center of the European market discussion. Uh, so with that, let's turn it over to Mike Reed uh, to talk a little bit about US uh, economics. Great. Thank you, Blake. Uh, this week, I want to focus on the consumer ahead of Black Friday. And last episode, you know, we did highlight some of the weakness we are seeing in the labor market. Uh, the unemployment rate ticked up. Uh, we're seeing the duration of unemployment rising and continuing claims continuing to climb. Uh, and I just want to point that out for, for broader context for what we expect to see heading into 2024. Just last week, we saw the October headline retail sales uh, report and that contracted for the first time after six consecutive months of gains. And this is particularly notable um, because this is really the first month of data that shows the impact of uh, federal student loans resuming up for consumers. And next week, uh, we will see the fuller picture in terms of spending from the personal income and spending report. Uh, And there it's worth highlighting that when you look at real spending and real incomes, for the past four months, uh, spending has outpaced incomes. And what's worrying there is that even before you account for the impact of student loans, the the consumer uh, is really starting to show signs of, of weakness. When you look at what's been driving the the strength in consumer spending, uh, we saw the the personal savings rate fall to 3.4% in September, and that's from a high of 5.3% in May uh, for 2023. So really a lot of that spending was driven by the savings rate moving lower. Add to this uh, the increasing reliance of uh, credit card spending for consumers. Uh, We saw the, the revolving consumer credit outstanding continuing to grow. Uh, And and what's more worrying is that if you look at the New York Fed report on household debt and credit, uh, that showed that delinquency rates increased across all product types except for student loans. But what's what's really important about that, that data point is the report only covers up to quarter three. So it does not yet show the broader impact of those federal student loan repayments resuming there. 
And guess what? The groups that saw the fastest pace of serious delinquencies for credit cards and auto loans were the 18 to 29 year olds and 30 to 39 year olds. Those are the two groups with the highest burden of student debt. So really, this is why we expect to see consumers pull back heading into the holiday season here. And we do expect a notable downshift uh, heading into the first half of 2024. And again, the, the thing to keep in mind is this is all happening in the context of a relatively strong labor market. But as the labor market continues to deteriorate, and we do expect to see job losses materialize here heading into 2024, um, that's just gonna add further pressure to the consumer here. All right, thanks for that, Mike. So on the US rate side, uh, I, I do think last week's CPI print marked a fairly important pivot point uh, for the US rates narrative. Um, you know, if, if you recall from August to basically the end of October, uh, I, I think markets were really looking at the world through a very bearish lens, grabbing on to, to data beats, to all the supply developments we had, uh, any kind of hawkish Fed speak we were getting, and really any other bearish impulses. Uh, shorts were very quick to add, uh, slow to take profit. Um, and at the same time, I think dip buyers were remaining extremely timid. So anytime we did get those opportunities, we just didn't see that buying uh, materializing. Uh, that, that environment essentially rested on, I think, two bearish pillars, uh, the extraordinarily hot run of data, uh, which culminated in October with September NFP, CPI, retail sales print, and then finally that, that Q3 GDP number. Um, and second was the huge amount of angst uh, that markets had around the supply and demand for U.S. Treasuries. Uh, that drove a resurgence of this term premium theme that I think accounted for roughly two-thirds of the uh, second half sell-off. But both of those pillars have started to crumble a bit in November. Um, you know, first we had the U.S. refunding announcement, which we did discuss in a prior episode, that relieved some of the concerns about U.S. Treasury supply. Uh, you know, as as Treasury kind of revised down their deficit expectations, pulled back a bit on longer end issuance. But then the data narrative started to crack a bit too. We had the softer than expected NFP print, um, a few weak ISM prints. We've seen a continued rise in continuing jobless claims. But to me, it's really last week's soft CPI print that solidified uh, that turn in the narrative. I think if CPI had come in hot or, or really even on consensus, um, you know, the, the market fears of breaking to new highs in rates. Um, if, if you recall several weeks ago, we were bumping up against that kind of 5% level in tens, uh, a, number of, a, a number of other key levels across the curve. Um, I think fears of breaking above those would have probably persisted into year end um, without that CPI print. But as it stands now, I think it's extremely difficult to envision any kind of scenario that's gonna take us back to those uh, to those yield highs over the next few months, um, you know, even if we see data rebound into the December FOMC meeting, um, the context that the softer CPI print last week provides should make it pretty easy, I think, for markets and the Fed to look through any bounce on the data as really just noise rather than uh, signs of a potential reacceleration. Um, I think with that, markets have rightfully priced back in some 2024 cuts. Um, you know, we have year-end 2024 uh, Fed pricing down almost 20 basis points over the last few weeks, and we have uh, a total of about four 25 basis point cuts priced for 2024. Um, I personally think this still has uh, some more room that that could go. Um, it's long been our view that the Fed cuts five times next year, plus I think there's always going to be this kind of long downside tail um, that needs to be accounted for in market pricing. Basically, um, you know, if we see a hard landing and the Fed has to cut more aggressively. Um, as for the longer term rates, I, I think we're in the process of settling to some relatively tight ranges for the remainder of the year. Um, but I think there still could be a decent amount of chop inside of those ranges. 
Um, I also think uh, there's a bit of downward bias around those ranges. So if we're going to break them, I think at this point, it's much more likely we're going to break to the downside rather than to the upside. Um, that's partially because, as I've been discussing, a lot of those sources of upside risk, you know, mainly the, the, the supply concerns and uh, concerns about a sustained reacceleration in the economic data, those have been clipped over the last few weeks. But also, I think, um, you know, you, you tend to assume, I think, heading into year end, the positioning is going to continue to lighten up. Um, and if so, I think that's a, a little bit supportive of yields, given that markets have been pretty heavily short for quite some time now. Um, so let me go ahead and pause there. And uh, let's go ahead and swing over to Jason Dahl to talk about BOC pricing and, and curves. Okay, thanks a lot, Blake. So there's two interrelated items that I want to discuss. Um, one, the wild swing in Bank of Canada pricing over the past uh, month or so, and how that has affected the entire yield curve. So there has been a you know massive swing in the market's view on the path for the BOC. Uh, if we look back to just before the bank's uh, October meeting, the market was giving a 50% chance of a hike by the January meeting. And it was firmly in the camp of the higher for longer theme, i.e. no rate cuts uh, by mid-year. And that's dr drastically changed. And now the market's giving a 40% chance of a cut by March. It's fully priced for a cut by June and has almost two cuts baked in uh, to July. So it does feel like the pendulum has maybe swung a bit too far, um, at least for rate cut pricing to April. Uh, we do think that the bank's first cut uh, comes in Q3. Maybe it's a little bit earlier, but uh, March, April seems a bit too early at the moment. But right now, momentum is strong. It's being reinforced by the CPI data that we've had this morning. And with a strong momentum, it's not really worth standing in front of the trend at the moment. But when the dust settles, uh, there should be good value in paying uh, the March or April uh, contracts. And... Related, the move in front-end pricing has had direct implications for the entire yield curve. So the movements in bond yields, twos, fives, tens, thirties, these have been highly correlated to expectations for the terminal rate for the Bank of Canada and especially 2024 rate cut pricing. So the drop in yields that we've seen from the peak a few weeks ago is wholly justified by what's happened with market expectations for the Bank of Canada swinging from possibly another hike to a long period of hold to now um, accelerating the rate cut path in 2024. So that has been consistent with what we've seen uh, in the bond market. And we do think over the medium term that uh, yield should edge lower, but the path is going to be choppy. Uh, the market's going to continue to grapple with the timing and magnitude of rate cuts, and this is going to swing uh, the bond market around. But ultimately, uh, rate cuts being delivered, probably 100 basis points in the second half of this year, that continuing into uh, 2025 uh, should provide a better macro environment for uh, the bond market uh, over the medium term. Thanks a lot for that, Jason. And uh, finally, let's head over to Peter to, uh, to talk Europe. Thank you, Blake. Um, I also want to talk about essentially these two pillars that Blake has mentioned. Uh, I just want to reverse the order a little bit because it's very pertinent over here in Europe. So I'll talk about the fiscal side first um, and then secondly, and therefore the supply of bonds, and then secondly, um, about the amount of rate cuts priced. So when we look at fiscal, um, it has obviously been a major contribution um, to uh, the 
economy uh, and economic growth or the little bit of growth that we have over here in Europe. Um, and we have um, essentially two fiscal events, one voluntary and one uh, less voluntary that's coming up. Um, one is the UK autumn statement or the budget announcement and uh, that's taking place on Wednesday. And then the other bit is um, this announcement about the German constitutional court ruling some of the budget in, uh, the, European, in the largest European economy as unconstitutional. So let's uh, quickly tackle those two. So as far as the UK's budget is concerned, I mean, there is a little bit of uh, leeway because the tax revenues have been better. Um, and we expect that this will lead to a drop in um, the funding remit in the UK over here um, by around about 20 billion in gilts. Um, that's slightly higher than what the market is seeing. We think the consensus is around about 30 to 15 billion. Um, but you know, and by and large, the market is, uh, is tilting in the same direction. Um, the bigger question, I think is what is going to be announced um, in terms of um, tax reduction for the forthcoming fiscal year, because again, um, there is a little bit of leeway um, uh, that, the, that the government has to fulfill its um, budget rules, and they're probably going to use it um, knowing that we're also going into an election year. Um, and there is quite a lot of speculation in the press at the moment about various um, um, rate cut options, uh, inheritance tax, um, income tax, all of that. Um, but it seems plausible at this stage to expect some of that uh, will probably mean that the um, that the the leeway for lower bond issuance going forward will be reduced somewhat. So that's taken place tomorrow. Um, the other item that I just um, highlighted is that there was this ruling in, in Germany that the Constitutional Court essentially um, ruled out some of the um, budget arithmetic that the um, German government has put forth um, in its various so-called um, special funds, um, and in this one particular one tackling climate change. So essentially for this ruling, that means that 60 billion of spending that the government has put in cannot be happening um, with, uh, within the current budget context. And what we're already sort of reading um, in the press is that um, new projects are currently being shelved and the government is scrambling and to get them back on the road. There's two problems with this that I see, or maybe two and a half. Um, let's start with the half one first, is that this is not the only special fund that the government has used. And there's other special funds that have essentially used the same arithmetic. And it seems um, at least um, plausible to expect that those will be challenged as well. And that means that the government has to come up with a different solution. And that different solution could either be finding a different way to fund it um, or finding um, other um, items that it can reduce spending. Um, and obviously, and this is uh, maybe the, the last point on this, what uh, this fundamental challenge um, highlights is that there is a big rift within the current government as well, where there is a coalition government and the, the Greens um, want to spend more money, particularly on the environment, um, whereas the social, uh, sorry, excuse me, the uh, Free Democrats, they want to um, prevent that and, and want to return to a much more, what they call a much more stable budget. And I think that this will create challenges going forward, not in the here and now, because um, in, over the next couple of weeks, it's probably unlikely going to affect the market, but certainly um, it will have some implications for expectations where the economy can go um, next year. Uh, and this is a good segue into the pricing of central banks, because just in line with all the other markets that we have just spoken about, we are pricing um, for the first rate hike, uh, rate cut, excuse me, um, um, in um, the first half of the year. And we're pricing um, close to 100 basis points, a little bit less, both in the UK as well as in the euro market. 
by the end of the year. And uh, the biggest question that we are discussing with our clients in meetings is whether or not that comes to fruition. And one of the things that we constantly point out that over here in Europe, the fundamental issue that we have um, is that base inflation or domestically generated inflation, and no matter how you look at that, whether you look at core inflation or whether you look at service inflation, is still running relatively high. So as an example, in the UK, service inflation, which is typically a proxy for domestically generated inflation, is still running at about um, 6%, which means a contribution of 3% to the overall basket. Um, core inflation in Europe is still north of 4%. Um, it's coming down, but it's coming down only slowly. And therefore, we have our doubts um, that by the time that the market is expecting the first rate cuts and that inflation will have, subs will have subsided sufficiently to give the thumbs up. Um, in fact, we think that um, probably um, with a relatively strong labor market and relatively um, high wage gains in both of these economies, we reckon that the market will have to push out the first rate cut expectations um, much further into um, 2024 and potentially into 25. And we reckon that this will um, also prevent um, bonds and guild yields from rallying much further, at least for the time being. Um, that's what we are expecting. Thanks for that, Peter. Uh, and thanks for dialing in. That wraps it up this week, and we'll see you again in December. This content is based on information available at the time it was recorded and is for informational purposes only. It is not an offer to buy or sell or a solicitation, and no recommendations are implied. It is outside the scope of this communication to consider whether it is suitable for you and your financial objectives.